Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It's been another week in the life of Theresa May's Prime Ministership, but it is very nearly the last week. And we're going to talk about what might be coming next. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So I'm uh, really excited (laughs) that Chris Brooke is back. I'm aware that quite a lot of people might have joined listening to this podcast in the long period since Chris was last on, which I think is about a year ago. Not much has happened. There's barely anything to talk about since you were last here, but we'll try and catch up. Chris, among many other things, used to keep us on the straight and narrow about British politics and how it works, particularly electoral politics. So it may be that some of the ways we've gone wrong in the last year because he hasn't been here. And Helen Thompson is here also. Theresa May has produced the final version, and I think we have to assume it is the final version of her Brexit plan, which I think we also have to assume is going nowhere. It may not even come to a vote, though she seems determined to put it to a vote. And it really does feel like the last days of this prime ministership. It's almost impossible to imagine a scenario where she keeps going for more than a few weeks. The authority has drained away. We've talked a lot about the sequencing of Brexit and whether she could kind of get people lined up in a way so that their choices were reduced and the unpalatable one pushed them towards her preferred option. It's almost like she's engineered it so that the reverse has happened. So each time she produces a version of her preferred option, people seem to have more and more reason to shy away from it because they think they have other options because she has no authority left. So one of the questions, and there are many, about what we've learned from her prime ministership, is it about her and her mismanagement of this? Or has something actually happened in this parliament to the office of prime minister, to executive authority? Because, and this is the question I'm really interested in, is her successor going to have any better prospect of corralling this parliament through the authority of the executive to do what he or she, it's probably going to be a he, what he or she wants? I think the answer to that question ultimately is no. They're going to be stuck with largely the same difficulties that Theresa May has had. I think some caveats need to be put on that, though. The first is is that this last stage, the point from the defeat of the third meaningful vote to where we are now, it's quite difficult to understand what she thought she was trying to do. I think all the other stages getting to that point There were reasons for what she did that were discernible. There were also reasons why you might have thought that it wasn't such a sensible strategy to pursue, but at least it was kind of like reasoning, counter-reason. And just to say, you could say there was progress. If you just take the three votes, the numbers were coming down. And if you plotted that on a graph, it it does get you to the bill passing. It does. And and there are certain contingencies I think you have to put into that, both the role played by Geoffrey Cox and the role played by the Speaker. And I think there's scenarios in which those two behave in somewhat different ways and we might have seen the withdrawal bill pass. I'm not saying it would have done it, but I'm saying it's possible that it could have done. 
I think what's really simply drained her authority entirely away is the decisions that she's made since then, allowing such a long period that coincided with a parliamentary recess to have these negotiations that were never going to go anywhere with the Labour Party and have not only drained her authority, but seems to me to have shifted opinion within the parliamentary Conservative Party to plausible prospect now of Boris Johnson being the next leader, which I don't think at the time of the third meaningful vote was something that was anywhere near as plausible as it now is. I'd be a little more generous to Theresa May than that about her behaviour since the third meaningful vote, because I think there's always something to be said for running down the clock, kicking the can down the road, and the Macorberism of hoping that something will come up. I think that the talks with Labour were never likely to generate anything, but they served a purpose of preventing her from being engulfed by the final crisis. They postponed that for a little bit longer. But to what end? Well, right now, the Conservative Party is in deeper problems than the Labour Party, in particular because of the mass exodus of its vote to the Brexit Party for these European elections. But... You can imagine an alternative sequence where the Labour Party ran into a crisis earlier, where something happened in the relationship between Corbyn and Starmer to cause the awkward positioning on Brexit to fall apart earlier. You could tell a story where it was Labour that did worse in the local elections than the Conservatives. You could tell a story where it was Labour under greater pressure in these European elections. Unlikely, I know, but it could have happened. Public opinion is... Is there a way that that could have happened? Because it seems like the thing that she was hoping to turn up was, and this was part of the strategy from the beginning, to peel off significant numbers of Labour MPs in Parliament to support her. Was there any scenario in the last few months in which a breakdown of the authority of Labour's leadership in Parliament would have allowed significant numbers of Labour MPs to support Theresa May? Because in a way it's almost harder to see how you get from her having no authority as Prime Minister to it being worth any Labour MP being seen to prop her up. I mean, that seems to me to be the barrier that for the last few months, nothing would have allowed her to overcome. I cannot see how she would get a chunk of the Parliamentary Labour Party to keep her in office. I think there's two things there. Any circumstances in which she could have done, and I don't think that was possible for a reason that I'll say in the moment, would have lost uh, too many Conservative MPs to make it viable. And the second is, is is that the really, I think, revealing moment where Labour and the withdrawal agreement was concerned was a third meaningful vote where several Labour MPs, led by Gareth Snell and Lisa Nandy, put forward this amendment to the bill that the Speaker then decided can be discussed or, or voted upon. Theresa May then accepted the substance of that amendment and said the government would commit itself to that. And still, the Labour MPs who had initiated that amendment did not vote for the withdrawal agreement. They didn't even abstain. They still voted against it. And it looked like that they voted against it because, as far as they were concerned, it would give the Conservatives what they wanted, and they are Labour MPs. And so there was no prospect of peeling Labour MPs off. And that's before we even get onto the motives of the leadership in it and the fact that Corbyn and MacDonald from the beginning wanted to use Brexit as a, a means and not an end, a means to win power for the Labour Party. I just think it was absolutely impossible and to have spent that much time on it for something that couldn't be achieved. I think that's one of the worst judgments that she's made through this. But I think that's where I think 
there was potentially a way forward for the government if the Labour membership and some of the Liberal press and some of the politicians who have been pushing for Labour to make an unequivocal endorsement of a so-called people's vote, the pressure on the leadership has been strong. And had the leadership cracked on that point, it would have been much, much easier for Nandy and other Labour MPs to defect from the party whip by saying that under no circumstances did they want a second referendum and that that was going to be their cover for voting for the withdrawal agreement to secure some kind of Brexit, which some of them think is they need to be seen to be doing that to win support from their own local electorates. So I agree that it is all about party politics and a lot of it is about the, the way in which the anxieties of Labour MPs in leave voting areas are playing out. But were the People's Vote campaign to make more progress with the Labour party line, then the Labour whip wouldn't have held to the extent that it has in recent votes. And it would have been interesting to see what would have happened. So that does make sense to me. And actually, I hadn't quite seen it like that, that the the fight over the people's vote within Labour had Corbyn succumbed on that front. That does then provide the cover, because otherwise there is no cover. There is no no way a Labour MP could go back to, as you say, their local electorate and say, vote for me, I'm the person who got Theresa May's bill through. You know this better than we do, I think. How close did the leadership come, or has it come, to succumbing to that pressure? Because as you say, it has been building, and it's coming particularly now from Tom Watson. Has it been close? I mean, maybe Theresa May did make a judgment there. It was a misjudgment, but maybe she did make a judgment that has some basis in hope, realistic hope. I think right now everything is pointing to October as the month of great high drama in British politics. That's to say three things are likely to converge in October. One is that the current deadline for leaving the European Union is on Halloween, is on the 31st of October. But at the other end of the month, we've got the party conferences. And the Conservative Party conference will almost certainly have a new leader in place by then. And And not just new leader, new prime minister. And a new prime minister. And it's the politics of Labour Party policymaking in the run-up to the conference that is of critical importance, because the party's been able to have this parliamentary unity with very few people breaking the whip because of this awkward compromise that was hammered out last year where this phrase about all options being on the table has allowed some people to say yes Labour is heading towards a second referendum position and other people to say no it isn't it wants a general election and, and, and so on and the kind of people who are likely to be delegates to conference the kind of people who'll be working hard on drafting conference motions aren't going to be happy with that kind of compromise, with the leadership signalling good faith and then people being much more sceptical towards it. So Labour is on a timetable that points towards what happens at conference, what motion is proposed and what the leadership is able to do with it. And it may be that that's where we'll see a further tilt towards support for a second referendum. I don't think the pressure has been overwhelming this spring. I don't think Corbyn and Macdonald have been much inclined to abandon the policy of squirting squid ink that has worked rather well for them so far. It may not be working so well right now with the European elections, but the European elections don't matter a huge amount in the grand scheme of things, so they'll be happy to to take that blow on the chin. The other thing that will be different in late September through to October is that the three options will start to look more like two. So we must assume that the new Prime Minister and Conservative Party leader 
will at least, it's hard to imagine any other scenario, will at least be taking no deal seriously as an option. And in that context, then the Labour position suddenly starts to look very different. Well, I think you've got to factor in the possibility, the real possibility of there being a general election. In Before the, then? In the autumn. When in the autumn? It's I, going to be very lively. And, and I do think that that was part of the reason why Labour wasn't going to move, because the, the prospect of a general election, which in one sense what Corbyn has gambled on, well, at least since the last general election, in terms of Brexit policy, has been there as a hope through the whole of this calendar year in one way or another. And I think if we get a new Conservative leader, let's just say for the sake of argument that it's Boris Johnson and he wants to take no deal seriously, there will have to be a general election. Because, because this Parliament can't yeah. stomach it. Paul Mason, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago last week, wrote a column saying that he thought the likely outcome was that a new Conservative Prime Minister, say Boris Johnson, would be unveiled at a party conference and would call an immediate general election, and he thought October the 24th would be the date for the election. The trouble is the timings don't work. I mean, we're entering a phase where the sequencing and the timetabling becomes very important. Under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, there have to be 25 working days between a dissolution of Parliament and a general election. And that means you cannot have an October general election with the starting gun fired at party conference. That doesn't mean an election is impossible. Usually the Commons comes back for a few days in early September before the break for the party conferences. And if the Conservatives have a new Prime Minister in place then, and if that Prime Minister decides to gamble on an election, those days in early September would be the time to put the motion before the House of Commons calling for a dissolution of Parliament. But then everything then turns on the sequencing of the Conservative Party's leadership election. And do they try to fit in a contest so it's done and dusted before the summer recess? Or, like with the Labour Party in recent times, do they have a contest that culminates in the party conference in October? I think they'll be well advised to move earlier, which is partly why, to go back to a point you made at the beginning, David, I'm not sure that Theresa May's bill will be voted on in the Commons in June, that it may just be that Graham Brady and the other proverbial men in suits go to her and say, you know, that's it. There's a real possibility that she'll be gone next week, particularly if the outcome of the European Parliament elections is is that the Conservatives end up with no seats. It is, at this point, very hard to see each day what it adds to the Conservative Party's prospects going forward. For next week, this week, I mean, it makes no difference now. This bill is dead. Her prime ministership is dead. It's over. It's not only that, the Conservative Party is in complete existential crisis. It doesn't have days to faff around until the party conference, I don't think. And I totally take the point. I mean, the timetabling and the sequencing throughout this, but it's getting more and more acute. And yet there are these things you think you probably can move. I mean, have the conference some other time run the election in two weeks, not two months. That thing that they have to go around the country talking to members. Well, there aren't any members. So just gather them all up in Tunbridge Wells and talk to them all in one go. You know, you can speed these things up because the Conservative Party might not exist in its current form in a couple of years if you get this wrong. Absolutely. And we've already seen that they speeded things up in terms of getting Theresa May, where we had some of the same talk about the whole summer of 2016. That's not the way that it turned out. It's meant to be their USP. After all, the great contrast between them and Labour is that not only can they get rid of leaders, they can put new ones in quickly because they don't do that kind of very rules-based form of politics, or they used to. That's right, because 
a great deal of the process for the leadership election will be fixed by the 1922 committee, and it can do that on an ad hoc basis. So when they hold the MPs' ballots, how long they have between the ballots, and so on. There was even an article in the papers the other day about whether the committee could allow four names to go before the mass membership rather than the conventional two. So there's much more scope for fiddling with the rules in the Conservative Party. But a rule has been doing a lot of work this year, which is the rule that they have that says that once you have a no-confidence vote in the Prime Minister, in the party leader, the party leader is then safe from that shenanigan again for another year. And so the rules are contributing to the current no chaos. No party leader will be able to survive what Theresa May is about to endure over this weekend. I simply, I mean, let alone a Conservative Party leader. In which case, we will probably record another podcast before I speak to Jared Diamond next week, so I'm not sure he's going to be our guide to this. Can I ask two broader questions, and we'll come back to some of the actual possible immediate futures here. But one interesting aspect of Labour politics at the moment is Jeremy Corbyn over the weekend gave a clear statement, which other people have backed up, which is there needs to be a mainstream party in British politics which doesn't try to define itself primarily on the Brexit question. So when people say to him, you are sitting on both sides of the fence or sitting on the fence or whatever the image is, he has more explicitly than in the past said, yes, and we're doing it because we think it's really important to be the party that both Brexiteers and Remainers can feel they belong to. And we think that there are more important questions than Brexit. And on some level, this seems to me a pretty plausible argument. On another more acute political level, it's very, very risky because British politics is being defined by Brexit. So it could work or it could be a big mistake. But it does at least make sense, especially if the Conservative Party is going to define itself as the Brexit Party. The risk is it massively revives the Liberal Democrats. I mean, it actually gives the Liberal Democrats a plausible case to become the opposition to a Johnson government. Clearly, the Labour Party still has a vested electoral interest in holding on to the remaining Leave voters. Yes, OK. And the uh, leaving that remain it, voters. That it, that it still has. But I think there are two further reasons why it's a reasonable aspiration. One of them is that in purely electoral terms, a revival of the Liberal Democrats hurts the Conservatives much more than it hurts Labour. Those seats, like the seat we're in here in Cambridge, are probably sufficiently safe uh, in the Labour column now, and students still have a residual distrust of the Liberal Democrats from the tuition fees fiasco, that a lot of the seats in university towns that the Liberals held in the 2005 election, the 2010 election, they're not likely to get back anytime soon. On the other hand, a revival of Liberal Democrat voting across great big chunks of the south of England, especially the southwest, and in some parts of Somerset, for example, they did very well in the recent local elections, puts dozens of Conservative seats at risk. But I think the other point is that Corbyn's position, from one point of view, it, it looks ludicrous in the sense that Brexit is this binary issue and either you have it, and if you have it, do you have it with a deal or without a deal, or you don't have it. And so this idea of sitting on the fence or trying to be all things to all people or whatever looks self-defeating because in the end a choice has to be made. But in a way what Corbyn's position is recognising is that 
no political party is in control of this process. And what we found out over the last couple of years is that you can't deliver Brexit on the kind of narrow majorities that the electorate is serving up in elections like the election of 2017, even like the election of 2015. That was why we had an election in 2017, because even with an overall majority, May didn't think she could do it. It will be incredibly hard for Labour to win an overall majority, let alone a significant enough overall majority, to be able coherently to put into action a plan for Brexit. No political party is that powerful with public opinion caught where it is, still polarised around something like the Leave Remain binary of roughly equal numbers of voters on both sides. Um, And I think Corbyn is recognising that, And there's a truth there that even if he says Labour is the party of Brexit or Labour is the party of Remain, um, it's not clear that Labour would ever be in position straightforwardly to execute its will. I think that in one sense it's the manifestation or symptom of something that the opposite of which is true in that it is impossible for what was the majority leave vote in 2016 to express itself in our party system. That is why it took a a referendum in order to mobilise the Leave coalition to its electoral victory because neither party was in a position, even though there were plenty of Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party, where they could straightforwardly turn themselves into the Leave the European Union party. It was too risky for the Conservatives and there was no desire to do it for Labour, even though I think that some of Labour's difficulties going back to 2005 election are bound up with at least consequences of the EU issue, if not the direct issue itself. So then, in what was already a very difficult situation in terms of realising Britain leaving the European Union, we get the 2017 election, where the Leave coalition divides itself between the Conservative Party and Labour Party, deprives the Conservatives of its majority, not quite a quirk, but certainly a contingency, then puts the DUP in the position in which it does, and it's tied up with the most vexed question in Brexit and it becomes impossible for parliamentary politics to deliver Brexit. So both main parties have got a clear interest in having Remain and Leave voters in their party and that's what Corbyn's articulating. The problem is is it leaves neither of them able to deliver Brexit. Hence we now see a Brexit party that is trying to mobilise the Leave coalition from 2016, or at least enough of it, and insert it in an insurgent way into politics. Now, at the moment, that's just manifesting itself in the European Parliament elections. If we leave the European Union, it doesn't actually matter what happens in the European Parliament elections, but it really does matter in terms of which parties have got momentum and what strategic and tactical difficulties going forward. So do you think it's possible that this is more unstable than it looks, that two-party politics is really fracturing. I was talking to Daniel Zeichner, the MP for Cambridge, and it was on the record. It was an interview for a BBC series that I'm doing, so I think I'm allowed to refer to it here, in which I asked him, what difference does it make to your relationship to this constituency that this went from being a marginal seat to a safe seat? And he said with some conviction, this is not a safe seat. (laughs) No one should ever think a seat like Cambridge couldn't do something very surprising very quickly, particularly in the age of Brexit. And I tend to agree with you, Chris, that it would take a lot for the Liberal Democrats really to revive in this town because it's a student town and university town and so on. But 
it must at least be possible on both sides that we could see quite dramatic shifts quite quickly. And there is at least potentially a risk for Labour that a Boris Johnson leadership does put the Brexit party back in its box in some way. And yet the Liberal Democrats are back as a force because they are, along with the Brexit party, the one party who are absolutely clear where they stand. And there must be a danger that the binary does work through that way. I mean, I tend to agree with you. I think it's a stretch. And the Liberal Democrat revival is a very recent and quite a frothy thing. But if I was Labour, I would still be worried. Yes. I mean, we were earlier talking about the prospect of an autumn or an October general election. And still, that will only happen if a new Conservative leader wants it. There's no plausible mechanism for forcing an election on the government if the government wants to resist it, unless there was a much bigger party split in the Conservative Party. You know, if you did have the the One Nation Conservatives around Amber Rudd saying that they wouldn't, they would resign the whip rather than be Tory MPs in a Boris Johnson government heading for No Deal. Uh, but that would be very drastic, and I don't think we're heading to that moment just yet. That's how you could bring down the government and make the country ungovernable with the current parliament, in which case there'd have to be an election. But short of that, there'll only be an election with the consent of the Prime Minister. And the fact that we're talking about it seriously is a sign that we think there is a scenario whereby a new leader like Boris Johnson, benefiting from the indulgence that people sometimes do show to new leaders who don't yet have a record in government that they have to defend because they can make promises to people that they hope will be popular. And we can imagine the Brexit party's bubble bursting with a new government tilting to a harder Brexit position. And Labour did do very well at the last election, but that was a fragile coalition that was held together awkwardly. And the politicians at the top of the Labour party are still not very popular. So my guess is that a new election would produce an even more severely hung parliament than we have at the moment with more Liberal Democrats in it and with Labour doing well and very possibly being the largest party but not coming close to an overall majority. I would just say that what is really striking if you look at election results from by-elections through the general elections to what's now likely to happen in the European Parliament elections from late 2016 you can see all kinds of different things happening. You know, we had the Liberal Democrat resurgence that produced their by-election victory in Richmond in late 2016. Then we had the Conservatives doing astonishingly well in the Copeland and Stoke-on-Trent central by-elections. If you look at the Stoke-on-Trent central by-election, UKIP got pretty much 25% of the vote in that. So even UKIP wasn't a spent force immediately after 2016. Then we have the 2017 election where to most people's you know, absolute surprise, Labour was able to get more than 40% of the vote. We have also the SNP losing quite a lot of seats in Scotland. Since we've had two parties, the two main parties getting more than 80% of the vote in 2017, we're now looking at them getting a dismal share of the vote between them in the European Parliament elections. We've got the Brexit Party doing well in Wales. We've got Plaid looking like they're doing better than only for the European Parliament elections than Labour in Wales. We've pretty been in a lot of different places where elections is concerned and so obviously all these elections aren't comparable with each other because they're not the same kind of elections but something strange is happening and so although all easy reflection would lend us to the conclusion that Chris has just reached that we would see another hung parliament 
in a general election. I think that we shouldn't be too certain of that either. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Can I ask the other big question, which touches on a few things that we've covered here? which is the authority of prime ministers and their ability to govern under these conditions, their ability to get legislation through parliament and then the particular problem of, you know, this is, as everyone keeps saying, this is early days. If Brexit's going to happen, there's a lot of voting that will have to happen in parliament to get from here to a stable relationship with the European Union. We've been through a period in British politics, a 40-year period, where we've had long prime ministerships, six prime ministers in the last 40 years, which is historically remarkable, anomalous. It looks incredibly stable. And even the short ones, Gordon Brown, Theresa May, are quite long by some historical standards, sort of three-ish years. And yet when you think about prime ministers going forward, it becomes much harder to imagine stable arrangements and governments lasting a long time. In the background, there's the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, this weird complication. As politics becomes more unstable, it becomes much harder and harder for governments to fall. But might we be entering a phase which, in some ways, would be historically more familiar, where governing in Parliament and the executive's authority in Parliament is more conditional and more fragile, and actually maybe even we're about to enter a run of quite short prime ministerships, starting maybe with Boris Johnson's or whoever's? I think that's highly likely. I think that if you look at the history of British politics, she should really say United Kingdom politics, the norm actually is electoral instability or at least electoral politics leading to instability in terms of governments. The long premierships of Tony Blair and Mrs Thatcher are real exceptions. To, Even John Majors, to, that was a long premiership. That. I know, but you could still say that it was a long period of conservative government and that the thing that looks... I think striking in retrospect about basically the conservative period of Thatcher and Major and the new Labour period is is that there was a dysfunctional, a very dysfunctional opposition in each case. And the electoral system worked in certain ways, first to the Conservatives' advantage and then to Labour's advantage. And I think that they were exceptional circumstances rather than anything like the norm. A lot of what's going on is being driven by the absence of a parliamentary majority. So we go back to the 1990s and the John Major period and the executive didn't have a great deal of authority and that's because John Major basically didn't have a parliamentary majority. That's the usual story in Britain that people always ask, you know, is the executive becoming more presidential? Is the prime minister becoming more of a presidential figure? And it's overwhelmingly a function of the size of the parliamentary majority. So what's interesting about the variation in this question is it's not about does the executive have authority? Well, if there's not really a parliamentary majority, no, it doesn't. Prime ministers will go through a revolving door and we'll have a lot more of them in a way that in the 1990s we didn't. We just had a rather powerless John Major carrying on forever. And it may be that that's right, but on the Conservative side, it's going to be something to do with the particular way that they elect a leader. That's to say, inside parliamentary politics there's a kind of pressure towards a soft Brexit kind of position as people who 
are trying to take a longer view and think about electoral realities and so on shy away from a hard Brexit position. You should say that's in this parliament. In this parliament. I mean, a but, future parliament might be very different. But what we have now is the Conservative leadership is in the hands of the members and the Conservative members, I mean, we don't know a huge amount about them. That's to say the Conservative Party is very secretive about how many members there are and how old they are and so on. And so the information that trickles out about the party is often very uncertain. And so we have to rely on things like these polls done through the Conservative Home website and so on to try and get the sense for what's going on. But everyone does seem to think that the Conservative Party membership in the country, not the mass membership, because it isn't really a mass membership party anymore, but people do seem to think that the Conservative Party grassroots are very, very Brexity now. And that's what sets up the instability, that to win the leadership, people have to make promises that they can't deliver on. And we're about to see people queuing up to make those promises and someone's going to become Prime Minister and they're going to fail and they may fail in the same way as Theresa May or they may fail in an interestingly different way and they may destroy the Conservative Party as they do so if she hasn't destroyed it already. But that's where the structural instability comes from that the parliamentary party isn't able to control the process so we're having a series of leaders or potentially a series of leaders, each of whom is going to be set up to fail for as long as the Brexit stalemate continues. I think the other thing is there's substantive issues that are driving this as well and that they're recurrent in the United Kingdom's um, politics is, is that we get turbulence in our domestic politics when we have difficult questions to deal with about the UK's geopolitical and economic relationship with the rest of the world. And when we have difficult questions to deal with, and they often intersect with each other, about the United Kingdom as a multinational state. And we have both of those going on at the moment. And just to be clear, do you think that that would be just as destabilising for a minority Corbyn government or a Corbyn SNP Lib Dem government or whatever? Because part of this question is, I mean, I'm not just assuming that there might be a short prime ministership following May's prime ministership. Then there's a general election, say it's a hung parliament or whatever. We still got the fixed term Parliament Act, but you can see that a Corbyn prime ministership could be just as unstable. Absolutely. I think that those things hold regardless of which parties are in power. When you add into the mix, which sometimes has come along historically, this kind of conflict between the claims of parliamentary politics versus the claims of democratic politics, that that magnifies instability, and that in a different way than what Brexit already does, a, a Corbyn government is going to bring that conflict into into being as well because unless things change in terms of the composition of the parliamentary Labour Party if and when the Labour win an election is there's going to be severe conflict between the leadership the party in parliament the MPs in parliament or a section of them anyway and the members and then its relationship to the electoral coalition that Labour will have been able to put together. I want to briefly to finish talk about something completely different but connected Uh, we're speculating about a future British general election we often make comparisons between Britain and the United States, the two two-party systems. But there's another two-party system, which is in some ways closer to the British system, actually, which is the Australian one, has significant differences, not least compulsory voting and a different voting system. But they've just had a general election, which has been hugely analysed because it was another surprising one. So it was in this run of surprising results. As I think someone tweeted, the Labour Party in Australia won every poll including the exit poll for three years (laughs) and then lost the only poll that matters which must be pretty devastating and it was another surprising outcome in which the underdog won Scott Morrison the the Liberals 
UK context, that would be the conservative or right side of Australian politics, confounding the pollsters, confounding the pundits, confounding the betting markets again. I mean, it's all very reminiscent of things we've been through in recent years. And many people have said this is Australia's Brexit moment, Australia's Trump moment or whatever. But there's also been a lot of pushback on that. And this is, in a way, my question. And I think it does connect a bit to British politics. Does it fit that pattern? Does what happened in Australia fit a pattern that we're seeing around the world of these surprising results where a more populist strain comes through that's not being picked up by polls and pundits and prediction markets? Or is it something much more familiar? Because to me, what was so remarkable about the Australian election is it just uncannily reminded me of a British election, which was not the Ed Miliband, David Cameron one. It was the John Major, Neil Kinnock one in 1992. The Conservative Party had just ditched their leader, as the Australians had put in someone who didn't seem particularly charismatic, seemed a bit dull. Facing a Labour Party that was convinced its time had come was a bit hubristic, as was the case with Bill Shorten, the Australian leader in Australia. The polls were confounded in roughly the same way. And it was an old-fashioned tax-and-spend election in which the Liberals, the Australian Conservatives, ran this 1990s playbook campaign about tax, spend, irresponsible promises, jobs, pay books, and so on. And it is a really big question in contemporary politics. Is it new? Is this different? Or is this familiar? I don't know know, what sense you got of the Australian one, but which one did it remind you of? Did it feel like a Brexit moment? Or did it feel like a... That was I can remember that election in 1992 very, very vividly. You know, the looks on the face of the Labour people really reminded me of 1992. I think that's right. I think the parallels with 1992 are very strong. But the further ones are that, um, as with John Smith's shadow budget in 1992, the Australian Labour Party went in with a very detailed prospectus of what it would do, and that prospectus was dismantled by the Liberals, by, the, um, by Scott Morrison, by the press operation, and now people are saying Labour won't ever do that again, just as there was a retreat from having anything as detailed as the shadow budget in elections after 1992. It also creates that awkward dynamic because Scott Morrison's weak point was that he seemed to lack a certain legitimacy because he'd emerged as the last man standing in messy faction fights inside the ruling party, and what he lacked was a kind of electoral legitimation of his own, and that's what he's got. And so I think the parallels with John Major with 1992 are strong. Um, But the reason I think I'd caution against mapping Australian results too much onto British results are partly that... Australia is a federal system. I mean, the 1992 result was a national result, and British elections are generally, not always, but generally fairly straightforwardly decided by the politics of the so-called uniform national swing. Um, Or at least they used to be. You can't tell a story about Australia that doesn't end up saying a lot about Queensland. In Victoria and New South Wales, Labour didn't do great, but they didn't do so badly either. There were some seats where there were even swings to Labour and so on. But Labour is in great difficulties and came nowhere near forming a majority government because they just did very, very badly in Queensland. And Queensland politics is strange. And there's nothing like that, I think, that maps onto thinking about British election results, um, except Scotland in certain circumstances. That would be... There's another reason I'll come to in a second, but that would be a reason for thinking these closer to more recent results in the United States or Britain or, or elsewhere in Europe. When you look at the map of Australia, there does then look like this big divide between metropolitan, university, cosmopolitan bits of Australia and the rest. And then Queensland fits more into the rest than other parts of Australia does. And again, you look at the map of Britain, you look at the map of the United States, and you see those divides, those big divides starting to open up. 
And there does seem to have been that aspect of this Australian election too. People saw a country which was divided in ways they hadn't quite appreciated to that point. So that's not like, because 1992 was very much a uniform swing, national swing election. I was going to say, I think that is the, the significant difference. I mean, I think the parallels are that if you, you know, stop British politics at some point in the mid-90s before it becomes actually probably stop it in September the 16th 1992 on on Black Wednesday in the morning (laughs) (laughs) it looks like that if you have full franchise democratic politics in Britain that the dominant party is the Conservative Party and then things have gone pretty horribly wrong for the Conservative Party in any number of ways since that point and that what you saw in one sense was the last gasp of that political situation in the 1992 general election, so that was April 1992, where the Conservatives played all the cards that they played historically effectively, or when they were an effective party anyway, and were able to defeat a hubristic Labour party. And if you look at Australian politics, the Liberals are more like the dominant party than Labour have ever been able to be. So the periods of Labour government in Australia are relatively rare compared to the periods of Liberal government, even when it's coalition government. So in that sense, I think that you could say it looks like Britain looked in 1992, but then I think you're absolutely right in that what Labour interjected into this, particularly through the issue of climate change, was something that just doesn't map on to anything that happened in Britain, or indeed the question of like which we think of as the historically dominant parties. And it opens up wounds within the left, I think, about what has happened to them in the era since the late 90s as this cosmopolitan, metropolitan divide with provincial areas that have not benefited from what gets called globalisation in the same way. And you can absolutely see that in this Australian election. And that was going to be my other point, to go back to what Chris said, there's that familiarity about Labour having come up with a costed programme that was then dismantled by an effective operation during the campaign. But climate change is climate change was not a feature of the 1992 British general election. And there is at least the possibility, you might almost say the risk, that the big takeaway for other parties around the world from the Australian election is the climate change one, parties of the left or parties of the centre-left, which is you had a... And this is Australia, after all, which is on the front line of climate change. So if it doesn't work there, it's not going to work anywhere. You had a party of the centre-left that almost seemed to take it for granted that the dial had moved on climate change and that there was an exception, a kind of default around which you could operate. And that also was dismantled. I mean, jobs, a case on the basis of jobs and the jobs that would be cost by a carbon tax was a very effective strategy. You could even imagine that feeding into American politics, that people will look at Australia and see the risks of going big on climate from a centre-left position. And if that is the lesson that comes from the Australian general election, that might have been the most important election that happened anywhere in the world for a few years, because that could have really serious consequences. Don't want to sound too apocalyptic, but it does give you pause. I think that that's right. I mean, Helen described earlier the way in which the Liberal Party in in Australia is the kind of hegemonic party. And I think what Labour has been doing in Australia is kind of making a bid to be that kind of hegemonic party because you know the politics of climate change aren't straightforward for Labour because it's it's a party rooted in the unions and in lots of parts of Australia the story is of miners digging stuff out of the ground and burning it. And just to say Bill Shorten was a union politician who could have after all made that case and he tried and he failed. Absolutely and the 
the Labour Party's idea was that you can hold on to the mining communities, the industrial communities within the sort of heavy trade union-based frameworks of Australian politics and kind of wean people off their addiction to mining and burning through a Labour government doing lots of other things, you know, shifting the economy more towards the educational services and so on. And that now looks like a much, much harder thing to do. I think that... One thing we've got to think about, though, is a messaging around it. And I think the the lesson the left might take out of the Australian election is you can't simultaneously sound apocalyptic and utopian. I thought you were going to say you can't sound apocalyptic and prosaic. That you know the thing that undercuts that we have to do something about this, we have no choice, is the very practical and what you might call old-fashioned politics that goes with it. I think that the leadership sounded apocalyptic and prosaic, and you're right about that, but I think that there's aspects of the climate movement and the activism around it that was mobilised as part of at least the campaign around Labour in the Australia that does sound utopian in the way in which it does with the Green New Deal in the United States, and they are very, very difficult messages to convey at the same time. Would Corbyn and the people around Corbyn take a lesson from Australia? I mean, do you think, because there's also been a bit of a dance, never mind the dance around Brexit, there's been a bit of a dance around climate from Corbyn, but he seems to be coming off the fence on that. And certainly in the Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg period we've gone through recently, Labour seems to be making a much more solid pitch to be the climate party. Would the Australian election give them some pause? Or do they think this is just different? I'm not sure. I think in this country, there's already been a sharp shift away from coal being used to generate electricity. You know, various processes are underway. I think the politics of climate change, I think the way it plays out is that, you know, Labour already has the overwhelming support of young people, and they don't want to lose it. So they will play along with making nice noises about Extinction Rebellion and the politics of climate change in order to try to solidify that sense that Labour is the party for young people. Um, But I think that's what's driving it, rather than particular difficulties associated with the practical implications of climate change, where I think what you said earlier is right. I think Australia is on the front lines in a way that perhaps we are not so much. It's good to have you back. We should do this again. The Euro election results only come out on Sunday because we have to wait for them to be counted across Europe. If, as Helen was speculating, things move very quickly after that, we will be back to cover it. We don't want to miss the thing we've been speculating about for months on the day that it happens. In our regular slot next week, we'll be talking to Jared Diamond about some bigger global issues. We also still have a few bags. If you want to buy them, go to talkingpoliticspodcast.com. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. How long have we done? Oh, we've done 38 minutes. Do we want to do Australia? I quite do, but you might not. You might think that we should. Let's do Australia. Yeah? Yeah? I mean, I think, because it ties to to major. I mean, I just want to do that. I did read all those things, so yes. And I've read some more. I mean, we we can do politics. I'll start banging on about the 1920s, so (laughs) better better shut me down. We should spend so much more time thinking about the 1920s. It could actually, yeah. No, I think we're in the, from... I think we were in the phase of British politics that began with Joe Chamberlain's um, imperial preference speech yeah. and ended with the emergence of the stable Conservative majority under Baldwin. Um, but I, I think we're just replaying that period on permanent loop. And it's for the two reasons you gave. It's trade policy and, um, and the UK.
Brooke is back. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 